Welcome to Forcing Function Hour, a conversation series exploring the boundaries of peak performance. Join me, Chris Sparks, as I interview elite performers to reveal principles, systems, and strategies for achieving a competitive edge in business. If you are an executive or investor ready to take yourself to the next level, download my workbook at experimentwithoutlimits.com. For all episodes and show notes, go to forcingfunctionhour.com. I'm excited to be joined by Brian Tate. Brian went from playing competitive Magic the Gathering tournaments as a teenager to becoming a Bobby's Room regular, competing against poker legends in the largest mixed games in the world. In 2016, Brian left poker to start creating homemade oatmeal. Under Brian's leadership, Oats Overnight has grown from a passion project to a thriving, vertically integrated brand with 120 employees, eight figures in annual revenue, and tens of millions of meals served. The title of today's conversation is The Next Level. At Forcing Function, we obsess about dissecting the mindsets of elite performers. When you're climbing a mountain, it's never clear what's beyond the next switchback. If we make it past this current level, what will it take to make it beyond the next? In this conversation, you'll learn principles you can apply from gaming and poker to entrepreneurship, what it takes to launch a retail brand, and how to reinvent yourself to create career inflection points. Thanks for joining me, Brian. I'm very excited for this conversation. Yeah, thank you, Chris. Thanks for having me. So why don't we start with Magic? So for those of us who haven't had the pleasure of playing Magic the Gathering, what's it like at one of these tournaments? Yeah, so it's a big convention center. Picture this, or as small as a card room. But players will either pre-construct decks and test them before the tournament and apply that, that learning and testing to the actual tournament itself in sort of a round-robin format to top eight, or they'll do, you know, seal decks or open the packs, construct the decks on site and play the games. But it's, it's a fun, very long, you know, opportunity to play games with people and compete for prizes. What do you think makes a great magic player? It's interesting. Good question. There's a lot of preparation that goes into it. A lot of kind of basic game theory and, and logic that goes into, you know, all the different variables from deck construction to gameplay and a lot of trial and error. It's a fun experience. What do you think you took away from your magic career? Are there kind of key principles that you find come up you know, in your day-to-day life now? Yeah, so magic, I, it's funny. I group magic and poker largely into the same bucket. And there's tons, right? Tons of principles. I think there's no real boundaries with magic and poker. You're kind of facing the market directly. And so one way that applies is you, know, you can always take time off, but you're not getting better, right? When you're taking time off and your opponents or future opponents in theory, are probably practicing or or getting better in some way. And so sort of this nine to five world or the business world, corporate world is just so much different than magic and poker where, you know, you're facing the market and there's no, there's no real boundaries on when you should be working or shouldn't be working or should be or shouldn't be improving your game. My understanding of magic, something that I think is unique to the game is that new decks are always coming out. So you can't just find your perfect strategy and keep executing on it. As the game evolves, you continually need to update your strategy. And if you find something that works really well, people will be able to counter it. So there's this aspect of continually needed to adapt and evolve. What do you think that looked like for you in your career? Yeah, definitely. So yeah, when you're playing a game and you're playing a pre-constructed deck, you know, you might be 30% likely to win against a certain, you know, archetype of deck or 80% likely to win at a different, different deck. So sort of understanding this is the beginning of separating expectation versus realized results. You know, you start to understand that you can maximize the chances of the likelihood of a certain outcome, but there are sort of prefixed expectations based on the match you're playing. So, you know, you can run bad or run good and, you know, you consider that lucky or unlucky and, and you start to get into this, this type of thinking, which, which I think you can go down a rabbit hole, of course. But yeah, you know, separating that in performance is really important. I think things like looking at luck as favorable variance instead of luck or being unlucky as unfavorable variance. I think you start to build these habits, I guess, of, you know, just knowing that it's the little decisions that add up and you, you got to put your best, best foot forward and, maximize that outcome. Talk to me about this probabilistic thinking. You mentioned that, all right, you have two decks matching off. If you assume that the players are of equal skill, that they'll play a you know, reasonably correct strategy, 
that you know one deck will be favored over the other. I think often in in life we see an outcome and we assume that that outcome was preordained. That was the only way that it could be. But in this case, let's say you were you were thirty percent to win. How do you approach this where you're just trying to increase your edge by just maximizing your chances of making it to the next round in the, in the tournament, for example? The way I like to think about it is if you run something out into infinity or run it out 10,000 times, you know, what's the chances of something happening? And so in a situation where you're playing against an opponent and it's 30% for you to win, of course, it's not favorable. But looking at that as making the best of that opportunity, like if you can get that to 32%, right? In the long run, that will be a much more favorable result. If you're not on your game, maybe you're going into it with a slightly pessimistic mindset or you're not pushing every single edge and every single decision, you know, that might drop to 28%, which can make the difference in, you know, of course, we talk about this in the long run, but you only ever experience one of these outcomes, right? And so the difference between 28% and 32% in that situation where the expected result might be 30 can make or break that, that exact, like there will be out of 100, there will be, you know, those certain occurrences where you won when you shouldn't have maybe. And so I think, I think it's thinking about that in magic poker or business is I think it's a really healthy way to look at look at decisions. And it kind of inspires you to always try your best and, and always look for ways to get that extra 1% or extra edge. So talk to me after you finish a tournament, what that process looked like. You're examining your deck, you're thinking about, hey, I should have played this move, this card, not that card. What's your postmortem for a tournament? You know, keeping in mind, you know, you're you're a 15 year old kid, I'm imagining, but I assume that you know to get to the top of any game, there was this process of examining what you could do better. What what did that look like for you? Yeah, I think the best part about Magic was that it was such a group environment for me. I think poker ended up being a little more solitary at times and, and more siloed. Same with business, you know, different points you're working with teams, different points you're you're sort of deep diving independently. But with Magic, it was almost always with people, right? So it was like friends that we'd play with. You couldn't really play test without playing against somebody. And this was probably well before Magic the Gathering Online, which which changed the game a bit. But yeah, so it was always a very, very much a team effort, right? Like you'd, you'd think about where you got unlucky, where you got lucky, what type of variance there was. And you know, decisions you made, usually they stick out. Sometimes they don't, though. And sometimes it'd, it'd be just chatting through the gameplay with friends and facing those hard questions. Well, why did you why did you play that card? Or why didn't you wait to, you know, play the other card? And so yeah, so it always it always spawned into interesting stuff. At that point, you know, you started to learn also that postmortems are important. But I think that was that was another great lesson learned at such a young age. So talk to me about this transition to poker. What did that look like for you? Yeah, so magic cards, when you play, it was fun, right? You're, you're playing a game effectively. And not really at that point, you know, at 14, 15 years old, not really thinking as much about money. Although it's hard to ignore that the prizes weren't that great, right? So you're, it's $5 buy-in and you might win a box of cards or something, or a booster box or something, which, you know, as, as a kid, you're, you're stoked about that. But poker came along, the poker boom happened maybe 2003, 2004, when you saw Chris Moneymaker win the World Series. And you started seeing it on ESPN. Every once in a while, there'd be a poker game happening at a magic tournament. There'd be like one table in the corner where people are shuffling chips and, and everyone was really curious about what that looked like. And yeah, and so, so slowly but surely, the whole magic community really transitioned into poker just because it was a very similar type competitive landscape with a lot of similar thinking, but just the stakes were so much higher because, you know, you were buying in with real dollars. And so it was around that time, 2004, probably that I, that I started playing online. So for those of you guys who don't know, you know, Brian and I had different trajectories through the poker world. I was primarily a no limit player and Brian was a limit player who transitioned to playing mixed games. And I think something that's really unique about mixed games is that you're often playing a game that you barely know how to play and you're sort of learning the rules and the nuances of the structure of the game as you go. And sometimes games are invented or variations are invented and you go with it. Talk to me about this dynamic where you're often playing games that you haven't had the opportunity to master yet. Yeah. So you're constantly in a state of learning, which is why I really like mixed games. I think in No Limit Hold'em, a game that's so you know fully developed and understood, and of course it's still evolving with solvers and, and things like that. But you know, I think about it on a 10 scale, like everyone's a 9.95 versus 9.92 versus 9.93. And then there might be like an 8.6 that is just losing all the money, right? In mixed games, you might have some people that are the best in the world at a certain game type, 
and it might not be a game that you play often. In some cases, some extreme cases, like you said, maybe you don't even know the rules, right? They'll explain the rules and you sit at the table, which which is always fun at high stakes. But you know, everyone has their has their kind of their edge, and and it just it just adds more variables for people to determine. You know, what is my edge in this game? And you know, I might be the best at these two games at the table, but I'm definitely not good at these other four games. How does that turn into a win rate or a loss rate for this session that I'm about to play? And so, just a lot more a lot more reverse engineering when you sit at the table, because of course you might look at someone who's the best in the world at PLO and they make a play and it's something that you wouldn't have done. You're probably going to assume that you're wrong not to have done that or not to be thinking along those lines. And so it starts this idea of sort of reverse engineering strategies, which I think is fascinating and also applies directly to business. A lot of that skill is just what to pay attention to and what not to pay attention to. And so that can go down. I think it's ultimately really the best way to learn as well is is having sort of guides in a way, whether they know it or not, people that you can sort of model after. And there's this idea of like incomplete lessons, like not every lesson has to be complete. It's just sort of a catalyst for thinking about something in a different way. And so mixed games are fascinating to me in that you're, you're always thinking about, you know, there's so many unique situations, no, no two scenarios are, are the same. There's common themes, but over and over, you're constantly, you know, trying to figure out what the best strategy is for a certain decision. I'm really interested in this concept of what to pay attention to. I think something that we talk about a lot here is that our working memory is limited and there's so many things that are coming at us that a lot of success is knowing what to pay attention to, what to ignore, what's signal and what's noise. So example, you're sitting playing at a high stakes game some of the games you're very familiar with, some of the games you're not so familiar with. Just kind of put us into the room. What are you paying attention to? Yeah, so there's a lot, right? Even maybe there's a bad player that isn't a professional player that's there. Of course, that's noteworthy, right? It might make the game return higher than average, but also the best players in the certain game type. A lot in poker, there's a lot of balancing ranges, you know, trying to be unexploitable, like playing GTO, as you'd say. And so you're just looking at, making sure things line up. So if something doesn't line up, it's information, you know, maybe they raise pre-flop, but then they check the flop. They don't always check the flop. What does that mean about their hand? What does that mean about the range of hands? And how does that range develop based on subsequent actions in the hand? And so in poker, it's a lot of balance. It's a lot of sort of understanding how frequently players are making a decision with what types of hands and then deciding what thought process is sort of driving that decision you can learn a lot about how people think about a game or how people think about you know, playing a plus EV or, or high expected value style based on those decisions and just thinking about it through the hand. I'm interested in this concept of guides. That feels like one of the cheat codes to progress up the ladder quickly is to have someone you trust and respect who's laying out the roadmap for you. We'd love to hear about you know, a guide that you've had along the way and, you know, more from a meta level, how do you identify a good guide? Yeah. So I've had a lot of guides along the way. I think that's the interesting part about this is guides don't even have to be necessarily the best at at what they're doing. Like I said, there's this idea of sort of incomplete information can help you think about things differently. It could even be a, a player that isn't necessarily a winning player who does something that's a bit off the wall and you kind of wonder why he would do that with that part of the range. And, and you might draw a conclusion that you weren't thinking or it might put you in a perspective that helps grow your game. But generally, yeah, generally guides are going to be just the best players that you're playing with. And I think this applies to business as well. You know, having good advisors or just people to talk to, people in the mix that help you level up and can kind of be that source of truth, so to speak. And, and I think that as you're growing through these levels, sometimes the source of truth at a certain stage might turn into, you know, you might outgrow them, for example. So that might, it might no longer be a relevant or like a leveling up type source of truth. But yeah, in poker, most of my friends were professional poker players at that time. And so, you know, one friend of mine might have been the best player at this game type, another friend, best player at a different game type. And so just a lot of talking about strategy and at the tables, you know, hey, why'd you bet that? You know, why, why would you bet that river? And you'd have a two hour conversation about a river bet and learn a lot. When I talk to investors, this comes up a lot. I think there's a default tendency to see someone doing something irrational and somewhat dismiss it and to assume on the opposite side that what we're doing, of course, is completely rational and well thought out. And I think a a very helpful 
frame that you laid out is that not all lessons need to be complete, that everyone has something to teach us, even if it's just helping us see things from a different perspective. I think a real critical skill from poker that translates to everything, but particularly running a company, is empathy. Is understanding that everything that people do does have a reason behind it. Even if you don't think the reason is rational, there is rationale. So understanding what does this person need to believe? How do they see the world in order for this to be a decision that they would make? And thus being able to to work with them and understand them that much better. I'm curious about this aspect of understanding the other person, empathy, how it's translated from poker to hiring to managing team dynamics for you. Is that, is that something that you've seen? Absolutely. I think one of the things, poker, poker trains you the least for the team dynamics because it's totally new, right? Generally in poker, you're responsible for yourself and, and you know, the work you put in that translates to expectation or results and, and over time you know, that'll line up or the work you don't put in will translate to losses. With work, though, with business, it's a different setting in that it's so much on the team, right? You can do work so hard as a leader, you still might only put in maybe 3% of the organization's effort, right? <laughs> There's so much more that's, that's being done. And so, yeah, and, and having empathy for, you know, everyone's different. Every teammate's different. Our COO says, you know, you hire teammates, you get people and they're all different, right? And motivated by different things. And there's a lot of beauty in that. It can definitely be frustrating at times. It can be surprisingly positive at times. It's just, it's just a different thing. And so, yeah, first few years, a lot of growing pains and a lot of, a lot of lessons learned. Still, of course, plenty of lessons learned. But I think we, we try to align around a mindset at the company that is, it is very, very rational in the way that maybe poker players would define rational and try to sort of teach that and encourage that type of thinking to get everyone sort of on the same page. Like I, we like to say we're never going to agree with all the decisions that are made, but as long as there's, you know, rational thought behind that decision to reach it, then it's okay to make mistakes, right? It, of course it's okay to make mistakes in that sense. But yeah, it's 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 a it's a journey still ongoing. Kind of takes me back to my poker coaching days. I used to coach a lot of poker players and it felt like I was being paid to just ask annoying questions. And one of the annoying questions is, why are you doing that? Where, you know, every move can be great or not so great, depending upon the reasons behind it. So I say, hey, you're betting. Okay, why are you betting? What are you looking to accomplish with that? And learning a lot about someone's thought process behind the actions, where the actions themselves don't carry much meaning. But if you can change the the rationale that's being used to make decisions that's at a much higher level of abstraction so thinking about placing a bet for example what are the reasons to place a bet what are the context necessary what are you looking for in those situations and i think the same thing happens here too with team culture where i think of culture as decision making at scale so if you have a core set of principles from poker and other places that team members that people can adopt and use to make decisions, that allows for a much greater sense of scale. Plus, when things don't go as planned, it's looking at, was the rational decision-making in play here? Like, what were the assumptions behind this decision, and which of these assumptions were invalidated at the time or have become invalidated with this new information? I would love to hear a little bit more about you know, your framework for bringing on new employees for onboarding, you know, imagine scaling out to 120 employees now, you know, some of those in office, some of those in your manufacturing facility, which is just a wild thing to say. What does that look like? You know, as you can't be working with every person individually anymore, how do you train them in this type of mindset? Yeah, so so leadership is just everything, right? Leadership's important. Culture's important. I think culture is also something that I feel, at least in my short experience, you can't just build, right? Culture is like a byproduct of decisions. And so when you make decisions that represent how you want your organization to be run over and over and over and over, that the byproduct there is culture, like good or bad, right? And so I think the framework for hiring leadership is just is just so key, right? I, I think there's a lot of these sort of like mantras that we have internally, but one of them that we like to align on is that there's always, back to this thing you were speaking about before, there's always like an optimal answer, 
or an optimal decision when you're looking for a certain a certain outcome, especially when it's like numerically based. And so you're just limited by the data and the effort to get there. Sometimes it's not worth it, you know, like if you're driving to pick up a pizza, is it eight minutes or seven minutes, you know, depending on what streets you take, you don't really care. You could study the lights, you could know exactly, you know, the, the route and, and try to get that down. It's just not not worth it. For things like like hiring or, you know, for campaign strategy or or product development, of course, it's, it is worth getting that granular. And so finding leaders that for each department that want to get curious about it, and curiosity is a big one, they actually care about being world class about those decisions and, you know, strive for that versus just sort of checking the box and treating it, you know, like, like a job. That's key, right? Because these businesses aren't built nine to five. Of course, you know, that, that can go into culture too, good or bad. But, but generally, it's a lot of hard work and, and you need to have that curiosity. So leadership that's really the bar for leadership is, is curiosity, really wanting to, to have a world-class result and a, a world-class effort and a passion for being really good at what you do. So I'm going to jump back to poker and we're, we're going to come back to Oats Overnight, but I, I think this is really relevant because thinking about transitions, I first want to know, as a poker player, it's always been a dream for me to just step foot in Bobby's room. I mean, even playing in some of the highest no-limit games in the world, that room just held so much mystique for me. I mean, these were the players that you look up to growing up and just, man, they have just seen and done it all. I'm just personally curious about what it was like to play in Bobby's room. I'm especially interested in what that was like playing the first time and starting to become a regular to the point that you're respected and one of the guys, you know, take us inside. Yeah. So I was probably the youngest player to join that game right before the more mid stakes games cut out. So there was sort of like a ladder, if you will, to go from, you know, 100, 200, 200, 400, 48 to 1, 2000. And the game was usually 1,000, 2,000 or 15, 3,000. So but largely the 2, 4 and the 4, 8 stopped running when I got in there. So for like the last five years, I was probably one of the youngest, if not the youngest there. And so I was kind of the kid in that room. And it's funny, the first year or so, I got to sort of just pick the game back to the mixed games concept. It's a heavy negotiation every time you play. And generally, if someone comes in, you know, on that 10 scale against the 9.9s and the 9.8s, and they're an eight, and they say they want to play, you know, Badugi, like, the game will probably include Badugi, right? That's just a four card poker game. So yeah, I got to pick the games and and did quite well, I think, coming in, I was very good at, you know, Badugi and Triple Draw and some of the other games that were a little newer, wasn't as good as the East Coast games like Stud and and Omaha. But so I, I could I could largely pick the game. So there was really fun first year. It, it took about a year and then I didn't really have a say in the games anymore. And then, you know, and then victim of your own success. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah, it, it was, it was awesome. I think I've experienced this poker. The best people I've met in my life are all, all generally from poker. I've met great people elsewhere too, but, but there's, they're the most honorable, like just very self-aware, driven, rational people around, certainly at that level as well. And, and, you know, there's some people you like more than others, certainly, but but yeah, a lot, a lot of really good people. And, you know, I, I feel like they could have put a camera on that table. Like just the banter alone. It's so funny. Everybody's everybody's a comedian during the games. I think that's another misconception, too, that, you know, at the high stakes, everyone's got glasses. And I'm sure you know this, but at the biggest games, like people are pretty casual because they're not worried about giving off towels based on like their posture or whether they're telling a story. It's just sort of second nature to make those decisions while you're also being social and chatting at the table. It's hard to pick up a read. It's a dynamic, particularly of live poker, that I don't think a lot of people appreciate, a lot because of the the cinematic portrayal of poker, but that it's really more of a social role than a skill role. You know, navigating social dynamics, sometimes being a self-depreciating entertainer when necessary, negotiation, keeping the energy high, keeping the game going oftentimes, managing your own psychology. There's a lot of soft skills that come into play that I know for someone like me who primarily had an online background, it was it was definitely a learning curve where, you know, detecting and hiding my own behavioral tendencies that we would refer to as tells was was just the tip of the iceberg. I'm curious about what your daily routine looked like during these days. I know you were really big into optimizing your own performance because of the experimentations you did that led to overnight oats. What was a typical day looking like where you expected to play in one of these high stakes games? 
it was very difficult to keep nutrition and fitness and balance when you're sitting at a table. Like to your point, sometimes the games would run for eight hours, sometimes they'd run for 30 hours. And, you know, your win rate hourly would change drastically based on where you're at and how you're performing relative to the players at that table, right? So hour 20, you might be just way off your game and tired, but if you're incrementally less tired <laughs> than, than your opponents, it's probably a pretty good spot for you. And you can usually tell that when you're self-aware and keeping attention. Sometimes, you know, I would never drink at the table, but sometimes they'd like order a round of shots. And, you know, at that time, I probably had a better tolerance. And, and so you would take a shot or take a couple shots. Doyle Brunson would take a couple shots and, you know, he's a little older. And so <laughs> it'd make for a fun game. But yeah, I, I, I think that the routine element, fitness was huge. Nutrition was huge. That's actually where I was where I first started making overnight oats was to have like a reliable breakfast that didn't take a lot of time. When the floor calls and says that there's a game starting, you'd have to be there in like 10 minutes. And so no time for Starbucks, no time to cook. Overnight oats were just the perfect solution there. And so fitness was big too. You know, I, I think some of my biggest leaks, I think were probably playing too long. Looking back on it, I, I just wouldn't leave games and, you know, would, would play for 30 hours, play for 25 hours, like quite regularly, and then be off the fitness routine eat a little less healthy and be a little sluggish, maybe have to take an extra day to kind of recover after that. But, but largely, you know, I'd still work out five, six times a week. I was pretty diligent with that. I'd try to eat very healthy. Ebbs and flows, definitely off my peak shape right now. CEO life is, is, a, little, is a little more difficult to stay. It's a little less defined from a schedule perspective. That was definitely one of the knowledge bombs from you guys who checked out our episode with Garrett Alstein, where he estimated, I think he said 80% of his lifetime earnings came after hour 16 of a session. I mean, so not only just talking about the extreme mental toughness that it really takes to succeed in the biggest games, but also that outcomes really diverge throughout a session that everyone starts out around the same same place, but as occurrences accumulate and people's response really causes those outcomes to diverge. So, you know, how do you perform when things aren't going so well? Do you hang in there when you're doing well? Do you keep your foot on the pedal? Are you able to sustain that level of focus no matter what happens? Whereas Brian said, you don't know if you're going to be playing for eight hours or sometimes 30. And can you hang in there if necessary? I find the founding story of Overnight Oats so fascinating because it seems like there's something really important to personally experiencing the pain point of the product that you're making, where for you, this was something that you were creating personally just to solve a need that you had identified to both have something that was healthy and allowed you to perform, but that could be made conveniently and quickly. Tell me about those early days of Oats Overnight. Yeah, so exactly that. It was started out scooping some protein powder in in the oats and, you know, looking at recipes on Pinterest or whatever where they were. This was before overnight oats was mainstream, you know, in the US. It was around in a homemade sense, but no prepackaged versions or any any brands that were doing it. And yeah, it was, you know, if you had told me seven years ago that I'd be running an oatmeal company, maybe eight years now, I would have bet a large amount that you'd be wrong <laughs> and laid a pretty good price. But yeah, so so it was just making a homemade version, right? And it was perfect for the routine. I think it was early, maybe 2015, when I was looking for a prepackaged version because I wasn't a grocery shopper. I was living between Vegas and LA at the time and, and would show up in Vegas and my place would be out of oats or out of protein. And I would just be like, oh, I guess I got to go downstairs and eat or take more time to go to Starbucks or whatever, which was never good. And yeah, I looked for a prepackaged version and there was none. And so that sort of spawned this, this like, well, how, how does this not exist type thinking and looked up on actually found Google search trends, which is an interesting tool where you can look at you know, relative volumes of keyword searches and did a little math. And there was over 100,000 monthly searches for overnight oats recipes or some variant of that and no product sold at the time. And so it seemed like, you know, other people were doing this. I had a pretty awesome formula. You know, we were doing it spoon free. It was, it was just unique in a shaker cup and it didn't exist elsewhere. And so I thought, you know, I was naive enough to think that food manufacturing and, and building a brand could be easy. And I, sometimes I think you need a certain level of, of that simplistic thinking to get into something so big, like starting a company. What do you think you were the most naive about? What, what was the thing that, that most surprised you about building a brand? You know, so much, by the way. So I, I think manufacturing was probably the hardest part for us, just like me and the, the early team. You know, we had some advisors around the table, but I think everything really. I mean, I, I look back at the spreadsheets that we made 
you know, how many oats we have to sell to get to a million dollars in revenue and profit. And of course, there's just no expenses, right? <laughs> it's just like just pure profit. Just so, so simple in, in the thinking. And of course, like, you know, we faced the market. We didn't have any padding. We didn't have any outside capital. It was all pretty much my money. And so forced to learn very, very quickly. Six months in, it turned into a full-time thing after seeing, you know, the initial results on Facebook and definitely a big leap, a huge leap. But I think I was ready for it at that time and, and excited to scale something beyond, you know, kind of exchanging time for dollars at the poker table. What were those early results that you saw that let you know you were onto something that you could go at full-time? There's this idea of sort of back to the, what do you listen to, right? I think we, we got the biggest critique from the audience that we thought we were building it for. I actually built this thinking it was for, you know, fitness enthusiasts, people that, you know, were waking up in the morning, hitting the gym, trying to get protein in. But we found out quickly that those people were actually our biggest critics. They like to, you know, build from scratch their breakfast and be very like thoughtful around what ingredients are in there, you know, very particular about the macros. And so it was, it was pretty good macros on the, on the build we had. But but those are actually our biggest critics. We found we were solving a problem, a better problem for for more mainstream America, whether it's like nurses, healthcare, teachers, like military, just people across the country that are looking for a more convenient breakfast in their chaotic morning. And so kind of looking at the right data, knowing what to follow, we abandoned the fitness direction pretty quickly. I mean, we still have plenty of like, professional athletes and different fitness enthusiasts that do it, but we found that our customer is much more looking for a direction for fitness and, and nutrition. And so we're, we're providing a really delicious and, and easy solution for that. Yeah, it brings to mind the jobs to be done, knowing very well who the customer is and what exactly the role that your product plays in their lives. How can they save them time and or money being the usual ones that, that sell the best? Absolutely. I love that framework for thinking because there's sort of this, and, and this is maybe a little further, but where we're getting into building oats overnight to where it is now, it's, it's much more interactive in the way we develop flavors we're really big on feedback loops. And so some of the things that we observed right away with the way CPG brands are typically constructed is that there's no real way to understand what product changes to formula will be favorable. You know, you can do surveys, focus groups, things like this, but they're pretty biased and, and just difficult to, to have solid data. But, you know, the typical model for a brand is they build a product maybe maybe through a third party or, you know, or, a, or an agency, and they bring that product to market, and then they don't really look back for five years, right? They might not make a formula change because, you know, why would they? If it's doing good, like good, certainly the enemy of great. But how do you make that change to formula and know that it'll be favorable without maybe risking, you know, the relationship you have with customers that like that exact formula that you're producing? And so we got really fascinated with, you know, seeing how formula changes in the early stages, we had the luxury of looking at everything, right? The Facebook ads, the Clavio campaigns for email, the cohort analyses for repurchase rates and LTV. And so we would be making changes to Clavio or post-purchase campaigns on Facebook and see a correlated you know, uptick in repurchase rate, maybe month two, month three, maybe by a point or two. But we changed the sweetener sugar sodium ratios in the product and it just a 10, 20% lift in repurchase rate. So from the beginning, we were really emboldened by that sort of full view of product formula and how it relates to craveability and, and overall like customer satisfaction. Yeah, the concept of feedback loops is probably one of the ones we come back to the most, that your speed of improvement, your speed of growth is proportional to the tightness of your feedback loops. So it, what would you describe, Brian, as having access to this data but actually running experiments based off that data and iterating very quickly. That, that feels really key to success, particularly in a field that you don't know super well, that you don't have a lot of firsthand experience to be someone who's continually gathering data and pivoting off that data very quickly. Yeah, absolutely. We look for any opportunity to put feedback loops in place. And, and to your point, poker, you have the luxury of just having this immediate feedback, right? You're facing the market head on, Deciphering, you know, variance from skill and edge, of course, is, is really the challenge there because there's almost so much feedback in such real time where business, especially in the early days, it can be difficult because you're sort of building, you're, you know, you're sitting in front of a computer, you're not really looking at the competition. It just feels like you're sort of making all of these decisions and, you know, you could, they could all be wrong, right? <laughs> you, don't, you don't really know. And there's, there's so many other longer tail factors that might not even be realized until two, three years from now after those decisions are made. So, yeah, really from the beginning, we've looked to sort of shorten that timeline and build as many 
build as many levers and, and as many opportunities for feedback loops as possible. And it's also the reason that we keep most things in-house, manufacturing, fulfillment. We have four full-time food scientists, you know, most of our marketing functions and creative developments in-house. And you know, we feel that the more control we have over these different levers, the more we can connect the dots. And I think that it comes connecting dots to get sort of outsized returns, having those vantage points for each department and, and seeing how we can kind of make the most of those when we're sharing the data across departments rather than having decisions made in a black box at a, a third party or, or something similar. We feel that that's been a really key, a big key to our, our success so far. Yeah, I want to hear more about this decision to vertically integrate, which seems so key to your DNA. And when I hear someone is creating an online brand, I assume that they're a marketer, maybe someone with that SEO background, and they're putting up a Shopify site and you know putting some things on Amazon, and everything is drop shipped. And they work with agencies to, you know, do the branding, to do the marketing, to do the shipping and fulfillment. But I mean, I've seen videos like you were in a production factory. Like, talk to me about that. Like the decision to maintain control of all of these different aspects that presumably you're having to learn from first principles what works. Yeah. So I grew up in a small farm town and my dad was a mechanic. And so at a young age, he, he started, he left Pontiac and started his own, his own shop. And so a lot of my best childhood memories are just being around at his two stall garage with his two teammates and they're just fixing cars all day. And so we'd, you know, bike around and, and see that. So I think part of, and I bring that up because I think part of it, and I've learned this later, I was sort of drawn to that when deciding, you know, what do we do here? That was part of it. The other part of it is I didn't know what MOQ meant, <laughs> you know, minimum order quantity. So having discussions with potential contract manufacturers, you know, there, no one wants to educate some young entrepreneur on, on how to start and make 5,000 units of this new product that they're not really sure how to manufacture. So it was definitely a lot of friction trying to explore the best options. I mean, looking back at the machinery we were calling on, it's again, it's just a, all part of that learning journey. But we knew that we could make it on our table in our kitchen. And so we figured we could map that out to, you know, a small little 2,000 square foot facility register with the FDA, hire, hire an advisor to sort of help guide us to make the best decisions possible for food safety and just learn as we go. So that's how we got started. I want to hear about imposter syndrome. Talking to a lot of founders, I learned that something that pretty much all founders have in common is a feeling that they have no idea what they're doing, that they've kind of gotten to where they are by just this iterative process of trial and error. And even if they've they've been successful so far, they're not quite sure what they're going to be doing next, what that next level looks like. So coming into starting a retail brand, presumably from scratch with limited experience and learning lots of hard lessons about manufacturing and retail along the way, I imagine that imposter syndrome has cropped up for you from time to time. How do you deal with it? I've certainly dealt with it, experienced it in the first few years, especially. I think that I looked at myself as a poker player, sort of posing as CEO for the first couple of years. And of course, you know, I, I, I felt my identity was so strongly tied to the poker room. You know, I'd even go back to the World Series and play a couple of tournaments once a year and I'd feel like at home. And then I'd go back, you know, to the facility and go negotiate chia seed prices. And so, so it was definitely like a big, a drastic change. It wasn't until the last couple of years that I started to truly shake that and get a lot more confidence in, in where I'm at. And I think what helped me the most was talking to peers. I think, it, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs, it's a, very, it's a very solitary thing. You have a team, but, you know, ultimately everything comes back to you. You're the one facing the market directly. And, you know, you, you kind of have to decide when to expose your team to that, when to shield them from that, to try to keep building them up. And so it's a very, it can be very lonely. I know that's kind of a, maybe a cliche thing, but, it, but it's very true. And so it wasn't until I started talking to peers that were doing, you know, some bigger businesses than me, some smaller, some much more experienced, some less. But you start to see this common thread that, you know, everyone's trying to figure it out, you know, in, in their own way. And certainly some people have more experience or have a different experiences that, you know, lend to better results. But everyone's trying to figure it out. And so if you can figure it out incrementally with incrementally better logic or slightly, you know, slightly faster than your peers and competitors, then you're probably going to do well. And I think especially in marketing, you know, the industries are changing so quickly, right? Like the, the channels that we, we spend ad dollars on are changing 
pretty regularly. The strategy is the way consumers give attention to ads is changing, you know, really year over year. And so experience that happened 10 years ago, you know, there's some core principles that are still applicable today. But we found that those that are really leaning on successes they had 10 years ago are the ones that are are least equipped to succeed today just because they're overvaluing those past experiences, which just aren't relevant today. And so I think it takes a certain combination of being humble enough to be open to learning and knowing that like this next chapter of digital marketing or product development or consumer insights or data is, is definitely different than the last one, but also, you know, sharp enough to kind of just stay ahead and, and, and look for data in the right places, look for conversations in the right places, you know, with the right peers. You shared a really interesting metaphor with me of climbing a mountain. I think this is something that is a commonality, whether you're trying to be the best at a game or build a big company or do anything where there is there's competition and there is many levels of progression. And I like the way that you'd put it to me is that you see the next switch back, the next level up, but you don't know what's beyond that switch back and you don't even know how many levels more there are. So you've climbed a couple of mountains and you're partially through climbing another Talk to me about how this mindset affects the way that you approach things. You mentioned this humility, this readiness to reinvent yourself, to change your approach if new data presents itself. How do you think that this this mindset allows you to stay humble, to stay adaptive? Yeah. So in switchbacks, so we've all been hiking, right? Where you're you think you're almost there and then you turn around and it's like, oh, there's a whole nother, whole nother hill, and then it just keeps going. Poker ascending those ranks from you know fifty cent a dollar games to to one thousand two thousand so many different barriers and plateaus most of them personal whether it's like the way you balance work life or the way that you look at you know post mortem on sessions or, or study game theory with business yeah it's it almost lends itself to more imposter syndrome because you know that the mountain is really really high <laughs> when you get to that level of playing a game where maybe forty people in the world played. And then, you know, then you're starting out from scratch, like, call, you know, not knowing what the acronyms are for this new industry. And so it definitely it definitely humbles you, I think, in the right ways. It can be overwhelming, for sure. But I think I think the scariest thing is when people think that they're at the top of the mountain, but they're they're down there. Right. And they and they, they act like they just reached the summit and they don't realize that they need to turn their head and just keep walking. Um, <laughs> and I think that's what we look for it, back to the hiring talks like. We look for that type of mindset, right? Is that curiosity, you know, what's next? Like knowing that, you know, all the success you had last year was great and and good work, hard work, awesome. But what's next that you have to, you know, you have to learn that you don't know now. And it's, again, it's scary when you don't know what you don't know, right? Like that's, that's kind of, as you get higher on that mountain, you start to realize like, well, I think I understand it all, but I'm not, you know, Elon Musk, right? So it's like, what, what am I missing? So yeah, it's kind of like this balance. I think it can be, I've had good and bad experiences with it because it can be overwhelming, but keeping this balance of, of staying humble, but, you know, eager to learn and also having confidence in yourself to perform when it's needed is really important. What level do you think that you guys are on now? What's the current challenge that's keeping you up at night? It's a really hard question. So we, yeah, we're, we're, we've done well. I think we've gotten to a great point. There's still so much to learn. I think, you know, we're fundraising right now. And even this experience, right, has is, is kind of pulled me out of the weeds. And it's forced me to look at business CPG, like the economy in, in a more macro way. So even now, I'm, I've, I think the last two months, I've probably learned more in that two month period, more valuable lessons than really the entire previous history or any, at any point, more than any point in the history and yeah, you know, it's just it's just different. It's constantly new challenges, right? Like I'm, I wouldn't consider myself a, a good fundraiser. I haven't raised a whole lot. I mean, we've raised, you know, something like eight million bucks in, in capital, but but just a different level now. Now with where we're going, and yeah, just learning so much. It, it is very humbling, but I think we have a long way to go. I, I definitely look at this like we're maybe at the bottom quarter of the mountain still. Although I think you know, friends and family would be like, oh, you made it, but uh, it's like one very long session <laughs> that we're playing. I always love that analogy. So Brian's referring to this idea of the one long session. Something that I see often is that we break time down into these arbitrary periods. And you'll hear poker players talking about 
having a good day or having a good month. And the problem is once we start to create these narratives in our mind about that things are going well or things are going poorly, we start to complete those narratives. And that changes the approach we take to things where if we are losing, perhaps we become a little bit more risk-seeking and we do things that we normally wouldn't. Or if we're ahead, we can take our foot off the gas and maybe not take as many calculated positive expected value risks because we don't want to ruin a good thing. But when you realize that the journey is infinitely long, that it both gives you the confidence, hey, on average, we are progressing. We are moving up and to the right. You know, The more you zoom out and you say, hey, we are on the path. But it also allows you to invest for the long run, to invest in learning, to continue to iterate, and to not let short-term incentives dominate long-term considerations. So it, there's a lot that's impact there in this language. You know, Amazon talked about that it's always day one, that as soon as a company starts to move into harvest mode where we're just going to take cash out of the business and stop investing, well, that's the day that the business dies. You know, I, I'd love to hear about you know, what, what, is, what is day one look like today for overnight oats? How, how do you stay hungry, particularly in this current, you know, macro environment? Everyone's wondering, hey, what's what's everyone overreacts about these things, obviously, but, you know, everyone's saying, oh, you know, retail is dying, you know, consumers don't have money to spend. Like, how are you guys staying hungry in the face of this uncertainty? Yeah, so fortunately, we're selling oatmeal, right, which is a pretty, pretty, <laughs> I think it's pretty insulated. It's premium oatmeal. Of course, you could always make your own and, and save, save a buck or something. But I think we're fortunate that we're not selling like designer backpacks or something, right? So that's number one. I think, but generally, it's really just where we set the bar, right? Like, we're not building a lifestyle business here. We want to build something like really, really meaningful. And we want to change a lot of lives. And, and I think we're we're emboldened by, you know, the customer feedback. We have our VIP group on Facebook and just hear these great stories all the time. And I think that motivates the team. The team is motivated by a lot of different things. But but I think generally just setting the bar at world class, right? Like we're always trying to get better. I think one of, one of our core values, which core values I always thought were, were just so kind of cringe in the first couple of years before we had a real like team together. It was just, you know, a lot of like-minded people just in a room making decisions. But as the team's grown, we've realized how important core values are to sort of set that ethos and, and align decision-making across a big org. Many people that I don't, I don't speak to, you know, let alone once a day, like don't speak to monthly. And so one of our core values that I think is, is maybe the most unique and my favorite is plus one. And that's the idea of just always doing one more thing, always doing that thing, just, just incrementally better than you did it before. And, you know, it's, it, it plays all the way through to our value prop to consumers, but, you know, Big decisions, big, big results come from little decisions. And, you know, if you're trying to lose 12 pounds over the year, you can't just lose 12 pounds, right? You can lose a pound a month and then you can't even lose a pound in a month. You have to start, you know, working out. You have to change your, your lifestyle slightly or your diet, right? And you can start, we say, with breakfast, just making your breakfast for the next morning. So it really boils down to those little decisions and, and having everybody aligned in, in trying to just be slightly better than they were yesterday produces insane results. And again, another another huge recipe for our success is, is that. So and it's sort of infinite in that way, right? Like you can have wins. We've done, we've certainly had great years, but you know, we have to continue proving ourselves and continue getting better because no one's, no one's, you know, comfortable or happy to just stop, right? We're, we're all trying to improve. And so I think that that together makes, makes for big results. So six, seven years in, I mean, the amount that you've learned along the way, I'm sure is astounding. If you were to write a letter to yourself the day that you considering, hey, maybe I should do this full time, what advice would you want to give to yourself? I think I've obsessed over all the little details because in the beginning, you don't really know what moves the needle and what doesn't. You try to do things right. And so you might see something like a comment to reply, you know, a reply to a comment on an ad and just thinking about like, what emoji do I use here? Like, what, what tone am I trying to send? Like, we would go so deep on every little decision. And, and looking back at it, you know, I think it's that mindset that drove a lot of the success, right? But it also, it wasn't applied in, in the most efficient way, I'd say. And again, I'm not saying I would go take it back, but, 
but it certainly was maybe like, you know, 20, 30% more, more effort and long nights than, than needed where I could have been focused more on optimizing for long-term, long-term goals or long-term education. But I was just so head down on every little detail. So I think, I think that's probably one of the, one of the lessons is, is to sort of just, you can't do this all in a year, take it in stride and, and learn as you go. But yeah, you know, I think that that one comes to mind first. Yeah, it always brings mind opportunity cost for me, which I think is always the biggest cost. So just the red pill of what you were doing at this moment is coming at the expense of everything else that you could be doing. So it's not that having a meeting to discuss emoji comment policy is not a useful thing, but it's what is that coming at the expense of? What would you be investing those resources in? Otherwise, you know, particularly at the early stage of a company, you have unlimited dimensions, unlimited opportunities for improvement. And so being very careful about what decisions truly matter. And sometimes it's letting some decisions that matter less go by so you can invest more resources in the ones that matter the most. I think a good place to end today would be transitions. It seems like you're someone who's really figured out how to negotiate transitions. So transitioning games and very much so transitioning careers. I'd love to hear you know, what advice comes to mind for someone who's considering a large career transition of their own. Perhaps they're a really successful investor at a fund and are thinking about starting a fund of their own. Maybe they are an executive at a large company and they have an idea that they'd love to see if it could be their own company and start someday. What advice comes to mind for someone who's thinking about making this large identity change? Yeah, I'd say that one of the issues with these decisions, one of the difficult parts is you don't really know, you usually think of them as binary. Like, I'm going to leave my job and start this. If that fails, like, I'm screwed, right? But it's, it's never that simple, right? Like, when you leave your job to start that, you get to experience that journey, right? Like you get to learn. If you fail, you get to see other areas where, you know, you can pick up and continue in a different direction, right? So I think when these decisions are made, they're usually not properly accounting for all the ranges of outcomes. It's too narrow. And so thinking about with me, for example, with, with poker, of course, poker was, was awesome. I, I, was, I was very financially stable and, and lived a pretty, pretty nice, I mean, it was stressful and a lot of work playing 70 hours a week, but, but I loved it, right? I was passionate about it and really still would be. But leaving, like I knew I didn't want to do that forever. I didn't, I didn't want to sit at a poker table when I was 40, 50 years old having to play. And so even if it's overnight failed, I would have learned about that alternative, right? I might have started a different company that was similar, learning from those mistakes. And of course, very favorable that, that this, you know, at least to date has worked. But I think accounting for all, yeah, <laughs> fingers crossed. But yeah, I mean, I think not accounting for, for the, all the other outcomes. When you take that leap, it's never just you fall to your death, right? It's you get to experience that journey and, and make good decisions even after those outcomes are realized. So yeah, just thinking about, about all, those, all those next possibilities. So in your mind, we usually talk about this as framing an experiment. So some assumption that you're looking to test, some hypothesis that you have, and creating an experiment to see, hey, am I on the right track here? That you can start to incrementally invest in the new idea, the new concept, without creating this complete binary, I'm going to do it, I'm not going to do it, which, you know, the binary outcome puts you in a, all right, I have to wait for this perfect timing, which is never going to come. But can I start to slowly shift resources to this new concept, to this new career identity, as I start to see positive feedback in that, in that direction? Is that the way that you think about structuring something like this? Or is it different? Yeah, I think there's, it's good to dabble first, because you might find out, of course, new information that you maybe you don't like it. Maybe, you know, you learn something while spending 10% of your time to that new thing that you didn't know, and it was just a thought. So I definitely think there should be a sort of a handoff period there, where you can just and I think that probably changes based on what it is, some things you might need to fully commit to and jump, some things you probably have the luxury of waiting longer. And so I think it's probably different. But yeah, I, I would say that that's, that's got to be the move. That's certainly what I did with, with Oats Overnight. And I didn't move away from poker full time until we saw, you know, our CPAs, our cost per acquisition on Facebook and, you know, the comments after people tried the product. And and so we had some good product market fit, you know, at least at a very small scale before I moved away from from poker. 
Yeah, it's something when I talk to founders, particularly who haven't quite found that product market fit yet, is to really force their hand at describing what product market fit looks like. So what are those signals that you're on the right track, particularly objective signals that you could say, yes, this is true. No, this is not true. What types of metrics do you need to see? What types of feedback do you need to hear? What types of experience do people need to be having? And not only does that allow you to know what to look for, which when you see it, you can start to scale, but also that creates a most direct path to getting there. If you say, these are the signals that we need to see, allows a concentration of resource to see, are these signals even possible? And what you want to do is you want to know, if you're on the wrong track, you want to know that as soon as possible so you can move on to the next thing and iterate. And I think really key to this approach that you described at Oats Overnight is that you guys are very willing to be wrong. But as soon as you find out that you're wrong, you move on to the next thing, that it's not the amount of correct experiments that really makes the difference in the long run, but just the amount of experiments and how quickly and how micro these experiments can become. I, I really think of like decomposing bets rather than, all right, this is what I'm going to be doing for the next 10 years. It's all right here. I have a long-term vision, but here's what I expect to see in this next month or this next 90 days. If I'm seeing that, I can always double down on that. I can keep moving on this path. If not, I can move on to option B, keep iterating from there. So yeah, I really respect how you've brought this concept of iteration and feedback cycles. I love this plus one as a concept and I really turned it into a culture that seems to be working really well for you guys. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think what you're describing too on that transition, it lets you stay objective. I think one of the, the experiences I had was talking to friends and family. You know, we heard all the time, well, like, what's stopping Quaker from copying this and just, you know, destroying you at a certain point? And it's funny, actually, to note on that, they actually did release a product and has since brought it back from market. So they discontinued that product line and they just missed. It just taste, didn't taste that great. And I think that's, it's always easier to say why you can't do it. And I think it's surprising how it just takes effort, really. And so staying objective there is, is always beneficial. I saw this presentation that really struck me in the sense that the paths of failure are, are sometimes very obvious, but the path to success is never obvious at the outset. And it was looking at machine learning generation where you're trying to go from just a random mutated images to something that looks like an object. So say it turns out like a star or a character of some sort or a sunrise, but all you have to go off of is just, is just random mutations where you pick one of the, the random images and then you generate more random images off of that. And they found that you cannot get from A to star or A to sunset by picking the pictures that most look like a sunset, that the path could not be predicted in advance, but that the only thing that predicted whether you could end up at this final destination is how many iterations are you willing to go through to get to the thing that ends up there. So I think that's a really interesting meta lesson with entrepreneurship is just this willingness to do what it takes in order to get where you want to go and be willing for that final destination and certainly that path along the way to be completely different from what you would have predicted at the outset. Yeah, that's the reason you have to be passionate about it, right? It's just so hard. You're going to face so much adversity. I, there's been so many situations that looking back on, it's like, you know, if, I think there was probably some sunk cost <laughs> fallacy there, but but thinking like, wow, this is just like, should we give up? Like, this is just so difficult, right? But we were passionate about it. And I think that's that's also key, but it, fascinating to see. I mean, I'm sure that's the greatest analogy for this whole journey is, you know, counting those iterations and giving it that effort. Right. I feel like we could go on for hours. I think you have so much to offer and share. Congratulations on your success. You're, you're giving hope to all of us poker players out there who you know like to believe that there's more in us out that certainly if we can be competent at this one game, that we'd be competent in many activities. So you know, thank you so much for, for blazing the path for us. Any final words anywhere you'd want to send listeners? Yeah, thank you. Definitely a pleasure being on here. Definitely check out OatsOvernight.com if you want to see what we've created. Definitely have a lot of poker friends that, that eat this regularly. And if you want to reach out to me, uh, Brian at OatsOvernight.com, I'm happy to send you a discount code. 
Awesome. Thank you so much, Brian, for joining us. See you all again soon. Thank you for listening to the Forcing Function Hour. At Forcing Function, we teach performance architecture. We work with a select group of 12 executives and investors to teach them how to multiply their output, perform at their peak, and design a life of freedom and purpose. Make sure to subscribe to Forcing Function Hour for more great episodes, or go to forcingfunctionhour.com to sign up for our newsletter so you can join us live. Music